Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 15th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that knows that paying the pros is the most important part of having a pro tour. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, a.k.a. Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good afternoon, James, and good afternoon, listeners. Excited to be here this afternoon with all of the recent changes due to the Pro Tour. A lot to talk about. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, break down the segments for everybody today. James, we've got four segments. Our first segment is the Top Movers. This is where we're going to talk about all the cards that have seen the largest price increases over the last week. Segment two is our cards to watch. These are the cards you and I have our eyes on as potential money makers. Segment three is our metagame week in review. We're going to talk about Pro Tour Shadows over Innistrad this week. And segment four is our topic of the week. This week we'll be looking at the organized play changes and the loss of the modern Pro Tour. So let's jump right in on segment one. That's our top movers. And uh, I'll hop in at the bottom here. That starts with Cryptolith Wright from the recent Shadows of Origins. Came in the week about 375 or so, and it's hanging around 750 for a nice easy double up. Cryptolith Wright uh, is the two mana enchantment that turns all of your creatures into Birds of Paradise. This was spotted in the spoilers as very combo potential-esque. Uh, very early on, and nobody could quite tell if it was going to do something or if it wasn't going to do something. Clearly a powerful card. And then at pro at the recent Pro Tour, LSV and a few others showed up with it in their Green-Black Aristocrats deck. And this is a deck that just spews lots of small value creatures out into the battlefield, and it allowed the deck to get a pretty dramatic mana acceleration game going on, um, even ahead of the supposed ramp decks. Uh, so... Not terribly surprising to see this finally break out, but, you know, with only with only really one deck right now that I'm aware of, I would not be looking to hold on to my copies. Yeah, this is a solid exit point for, you know, a rare in, a, in the most recently printed large set. Um, you know, if you got in at 2 or $3 and saw the writing on the wall ahead of time, good for you. Um, I certainly missed out on that one because, you know, the, the consensus, if you look at all of the set reviews, was that this was, you know, forgettable. Um, what people missed was that on turns four or five, the aristocrat style deck um, can make really good use of a burst of available mana to get the critical mass of creatures on the battlefield necessary to set up the drain triggers on Zulaport Cutthroat vis-a-vis um, Nantuku Husk so that, you know, you can basically X the opponent out of the game all at once in, in a single turn. And one of the reasons that this was particularly successful strategy at the Pro Tour was because going in, they knew that they were going to be facing um, a lot of Bant company decks. And because, you know, Bant in general um, is going to have less uh, methods of modes of interaction than in, you know, red or black decks that are having going to typically have more targeted removal. And in the case of this metagame, uh, sweepers like Languish. Um, they knew that they had a relatively, uh, you know, solid avenue of approach to get to that combo. And we saw LSV on camera a couple of times, I think on turns four or five, 
um, able to like just destroy um, in a single turn um, his band company opponents, taking them from you know eighteen or twenty life down to zero in a hurry. Uh, very impressive showing, but you're right, Travis. It's time to get out on that card. And speaking of languish, uh, James, what is the next card on our list? Uh, that would be languish. Uh, you know, origins rare and uh, a sweeper that has been discussed as a potential target um, for advancement at numerous uh, points in previous metagames, uh, you know, since its release last summer, um, on the basis that eventually it would be, you know, the best sweeper in the format. Um, and here we find ourselves in a fairly aggro-oriented uh, slash mid-range, pretty grindy format where a lot of the creatures have toughness four or less and, you know, all the way up to Avacyn best creature in the format and uh you know so it's not a surprise that we see this this origins rare jumping from four dollars to over eight for a hundred percent uh gain given that it's rotating out in the fall um you know i think it's max potential somewhere in the 10 to 12 dollar range depending on how the next few big standard tournaments go uh and on that basis you should be happy to trade these out now as it is highly unlikely to find a home in say modern where players have access to both wrath of god supreme verdict and uh and also damnation yeah i feel like we should get some sort of bell i should download a bell sound effect or something that we can put in for every time that one of our spec picks ends up in our top movers list later on that we can go back and, and ring the bell for when we pull that <laughs> off <laughs> um, that's a good okay idea. Next idea, uh, next card is Reshape from Dark Steel, specifically the foil copy. This moved from 6 to 15 this week for a $9 increase, about 150% gain. Reshape is, uh, was purchased, the foils were purchased in hopes of using it to tutor for Thopter Foundry Sword of the Meek combo pieces. It originally, uh, saw its modern heyday back when eggs was legal. You could sacrifice uh, an artifact for two mana and go get Lotus Blooms. Uh, Second Sunrise is gone, but the card is finding its legs again with Thopter Sword. We haven't seen prices on the non-foils move too much. This looks like a few... You know, this is a Dark Steel foil. Again, the Murden block, there are so few copies of cards out there these days. You only needed a few people out there to go looking to pick up their foil sets of reshape. Um, oh, oh. Sorry about that. A few sets of foil reshape out there for uh, for what they may or may not perceive as a use for them, and then suddenly the price is skyrocketing. So that's that's where it's coming from, the Thopter Sword uh, strategy, although I don't know if it's ever going to actually matter there. Yeah, fair enough. So the next card on our list is Deadbridge Chant. Uh, the Dragon's Maze foil um, has jumped from $6 to $18. Um, you know, pretty rare that we see movement on a Dragon's Maze card, but I guess uh, players must have found um, some avenue of, of use for this in EDH or Commander. Uh, you got me. This is our only card on the list that I really was just totally stumped on for where this came from. I don't even know if this is fully legitimate, to be honest with you. Well, I mean, on EDH Rec, um, you know, I'm seeing 1,050 uh uses of the card um out of eight thousand plus decks so that's actually a fairly significant number so I, I have to assume that you know there was a relatively low number of foils um you know it is a foil it is a mythic um from that set mm -hmm. and the other thing is that there aside from uh you know a single mythic uh let me back up the truck because I need to find the name. Voice of Resurgence. That would be the one. 
So yeah, I mean, aside from Voice of Resurgence, um, very little else is worth anything in Dragon's Maze, which is actually a situation in which cards can uh, quickly pop um, when you have a set whose value is largely depressed and is hinging on only one or two cards. Anything that suddenly comes to the forefront uh, down the road when you know no further amounts of the product are being opened um, can lead to a quick spike, and maybe that's what happened here. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm looking at TCG Player. There's a near mint copy out there for nine bucks right now, and then two, two or three at twenty. So um, I don't know. This this is curious. Uh, next up is Hissing Quagmire from Oath of the Gatewatch. This is the green black man land. Came into the week at about a dollar fifty two dollars. Currently at six bucks or so. Uh, that's about a two hundred percent or so uh, increase. This spiked pretty hard uh, after the overall success of green black at the pro tour we saw uh, again lsv's aristocrats deck do uh, make the top eight as well as finkel's green black uh seasons past deck um so you know the color combo demonstrating its its power in both like a low to the ground uh, quick combo kill aggro-ish deck, and also on the total other opposite end of the scale and the slowest, grindiest control back possible. So clearly those two colors are flexible right now in standard. Um, so, you know, I, I, if we if I had the bell sound, this is where I'd be ringing it again, because we actually also called this one a handful of shows ago at around a dollar. So there's your, if, you're, if your friends aren't listening, tell them to tune in, because you could have made a bundle on this guy had, uh, had you bought in when we talked about this a while ago. Yeah, I believe it was show number nine uh, where Travis called us out at a dollar, folks. So um, right. definitely worth listening. So let's move on to Muddle the Mixture at a Ravnica, moving from $2.50 to $7.50. Um, there are anybody who's got bulk boxes is going to be scavenging pretty hard um, in a week where a, ra- a Ravnica block uh, common jumps up to close to $10. Um, this is probably on a movement that is associated with the advent of Thopter Gifts decks and all of the different configurations. Um, the ability to transmute this card to go get either side of the Thopter Gifts combo, um, since all three cards cost two uh, converted mana cost, um, is where this level of interest is coming from. Um, I, I was certainly happy myself to go back to the uh, Super Collection bulk and pull out a whole bunch of these a couple weeks ago when they first started to move up. And uh, I've got a couple of foils lying around, too, that should be fairly profitable down the road. Yeah, I can't. This is, I mean, I really liked this. And the only reason I didn't uh, mention it a few weeks ago was because it had basically already started to spike by the time we were recording. But even I did not anticipate it was going to get this expensive. I mean, one of the interesting things here is that, you know, this is... Transmute as an ability is the perfect example of open-ended synergy, this concept we like to come back to again and again, which is, you know, a card that can, you know, achieve synergy with anything that has converted mana cost of X, if X is something that is likely to be played in the formats in question, in this case, you know, a casting cost of two, which is about perfect and modern. Um, you know, it's it's not that surprising that somebody would find a use for it down the road. And when you're looking for long-term specs, folks, cards that are under the radar, you know, look for things uh, that are uh, uh, similarly powerful and open-ended. Yep, I completely agree. Uh, okay, uh, next up is Puka's Mischief. 
This is from Shadowmore. This started the week at a dollar and change, and it is currently seven bucks for a five dollar or so increase. Uh, James and I were talking about this before the show started. We are mildly perplexed. Uh, there wasn't a lot of supply on this in the first place. Why someone decided to buy it out, I'm not exactly sure. I talked to uh, one of my buddies and who runs a store, and he said somebody bought 10 foils from him at once, so it seems like there is uh, there might be some sort of a bio going on here. Um, it might have to do with swapping your demonic pact with somebody else's permanence. That's, that's what we were coming up with, I think, maybe stealing their thopter components. Uh, other than that, I feel like we don't really have a good handle on this one beyond just buyout. So, so let me toss out the card text to the listeners, and maybe they can respond okay. to the, com- the comments okay. on the show notes and help us figure it out. The enchantment is uh, three and a blue. Um, at the beginning of your upkeep, you may you may exchange control of target non-land permanent you control and target non-land permanent and opponent controls with an equal or lesser converted mana cost. So it certainly has applications in EDH, though on EDH rec um, doesn't seem to be much used. Um, you know, but the ability to do it with any opponent certainly seems to have EDH applications. Um, you know, swapping demonic pack for anything that costs less than demonic pack um, on the turn before you're going to die to it sounds pretty exciting. Um, but it, <laughs> it's also pretty janky uh, until somebody proves otherwise with a tuned list. Um, so if you guys know anything about why this one's moving, holler at us and uh, otherwise we'll move on here. Yeah, absolutely. What do you got for us? So next on the list is Wheel of Sun and Moon out of Shadowmore. Uh, this has moved from $5 to $20 for an almost 300% gain. And we actually saw uh, some movement on this earlier in the season. Uh, I believe this, the card originally started in the $1 to $2 range and had moved up to 5 uh, in a little burst there only to stabilize for a while. And then I guess supply has just gotten to the point where on you know the next demand side spike, uh, we're seeing major growth. Uh, the idea here is that I guess it's uh, a somewhat, you know, dubious response to, you know, Thopter combo um, shenanigans out of the graveyard. So in case you guys aren't uh, aware, uh, Wheel of Sun and Moon is a green or white, green or white hybrid mana card from Shadowmoor. It's an enchantment uh, or aura uh, that enchants target player. And if a card would be put into Enchanted Player's Graveyard from anywhere, instead that card is revealed and put on the bottom of that player's library. So the concept here is that when they start to go off with the sword uh, Thopter Foundry combo, they have to sack the, the Foundry to get it in the graveyard, which then triggers Sword of the Meek to come back. Uh, sorry, they have to s- sacrifice the sword to the Thopter Foundry to get the sword in the graveyard, um, but because you've made a 1-1, the sword pops back out of the graveyard and onto the 1-1, and they can do that for as, as much mana as they've got to generate uh, you know, a large number of 1-1 flyers. Um, with Wheel of Sun and Moon in play, um, it just basically turns that all off. Uh, yeah, I, I don't care for this as an answer to the combo. I think this is, this is questionable at best, but at the very least we know where the price increase came from. Um, but I would be selling these uh, as fast as possible because if you can cast this card, you are in the two best colors for answering artifacts, uh, one of which has Stony Silence, which is a very good answer to that combo. So, yeah, All right. and Stony Silence has struggled to hold you know, mid-teens even when it was in massive demand because Affinity was kind of the de facto best deck in the format um, and continues to be quite strong, and yet Stony Silence is pretty stalled out. Now, Wheel of Sun and Moon is you know, an older card, um, than Stony Silence, but still, 
yeah, I mean, at $20, I'm happy to get out of these. Yeah, I mean, this is not, this is, unless Dredge and uh, Doctor Foundry takes over the format in equal parts, this is not a main deck card in any universe. Okay, uh, next up is Koth of the Hammer, uh, whose name is its own acronym. From We're looking at the Scars of Mirrodin foil copies. Looks like they started the week around 12. We're seeing it jump to about $50 right now. Uh, that's a $38 increase. This looks like it was a buyout from low supply. We can find um, played foil copies for much closer to the original price of 12 bucks, but near mint copies are nowhere to be found. So it looks like this again dwindled to a, um, a lower supply and somebody decided to, to finish it off or a collection of players finished it off inadvertently. Um, I know uh, James found a result or two where it was used in blood, uh, Blue Moon Ducks as a, as a type of finisher, but overall, I don't think there's a very large demand profile on this, aside from being a original printing Planeswalker foil. Uh, so uh, if you can get 50 bucks for your copy, I'd be happy to take it, um, but I don't think that this is really a, a real price, at least not yet. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I mean, even Puka Trade, uh, there are people looking for them at $35 worth of points. So if you've got a couple sitting around, by all means, trade out in the next week or so and you should be in good shape. Definitely. Okay, what's le- what's next? Well, the second biggest mover of the week was a, uh, a card out of John Finkel's deck at the Pro Tour. Um, easily my most enjoyable moments of the weekend while covering the Pro Tour, uh, getting up at three in the morning every day to cover... Uh, what was going on in Europe was watching cool. Finkel recurse like 20 cards in a single game using seasons past after everybody dis- discarded that that card as a jank mythic. I mean, there were probably copies of seasons past left as the dregs of, of d- local drafts. Um, people were so down on the card. And here we have the best player of all time using it to cast, you know, 10, 15 additional spells per game and take firm con- uh, control uh, against the the grindy mid range decks that already were exhibiting you know fantastic card value turn after turn and he was able to outpace and and get very deep in the in, into the tournament and make top eight. Um, it's worth noting that the seasons past deck didn't do that well overall despite how many members of the pantheon were running it. Um, it was a Reed Duke build um, and we had I think uh, Huey Reed and Owen all on it. Um, and they did solidly, but not amazing. Um, so the question becomes, you know, is the is the deck great or is Finkel great? Um, regardless, on a, something that you got in on, at if you were wise enough to look into the future on this card and, and pick them up at $2, um, you know, getting out anywhere between 8 and 10 is excellent. So go ahead and take advantage of that. Yep. And uh, to finish this off, our list for today on the other half of that combo is Dark Petition from... Magic Origins. Uh, that is Origins, isn't it? Uh, yep. Did not. Yes, it indeed okay. it was. It is Origins. Uh, I wrote it down. I didn't actually check it. Uh, started out the week at $1.50, right around the same price as Seasons Pass, and it is currently $7, uh, basically the same percentage increase. This is the other half of that Seasons Pass combo. Essentially turns into a Demonic Tutor, um, the Band, band in Legacy Tutor. Uh, once you have Spell Mastery, an extremely powerful card in certain circumstances, 
Um, I've always been a little wary of it because I didn't think that it would see sufficient play in Legacy or Modern to really drive the non-foil copies, but uh, a strong standard performance like this will definitely move the needle, though I would not be willing to be anywhere near this card uh, a week from today. So make sure you are selling your copies now. It is worth noting that uh, Seth Manfield's Esper Control Planeswalker deck um, which is kind of the you know we the uh, inheritor of the Esper Control Crown from the Esper Dragons deck that also made top eight um, that was running uh, two copies of Jace Unraveler of Secrets, three Narset Transcendent, which was definitely of note uh, from a financial perspective, and Obnixilis and two Soren Grim Nemesis um, was also running two Dark Petition uh, as a way in the in the mid game to go look for the finisher that they needed or the solution that was required to either clean up the board or start to turn the corner. Um, so, I mean, Dark Petition is a card. I was buying foils at 4 or $5 through the early, late fall. Um, in theory, I have 30 or 40 copies of regular copies that I bought under a dollar um, that I would love to find um, because the timing <laughs> is now, as you said. <laughs> and uh, I'm definitely going to miss out if I don't track them down in a hurry. Um, because, yeah. like you said, I, I think the foils are actually still uh, an excellent long-term uh, hold once they fade back under 10 right now they're about 15 um, you, if you have foils you can feel free to exit now you're at a triple up um, or you can hold for the long term because I actually think that this card may show up in modern at some point it is uh, a tutor uh, and tutors should never be underestimated uh, in legacy it, it's a powerful card ditto in vintage um, and origins uh, was a small summer set so there, there's a chance that those foils have a have a future uh, but it, I, I was impressed to see it integrated uh, into multiple decks in the top eight of the Pro Tour, um, and uh, I don't think it's got much room to get to gain upside. Um, so get out, like Travis said. Yeah, I uh, I mean, as soon as it was spoiled, I looked at it and went, "Well, that's actually a, a pretty powerful card since it turns a demonic tutor." But you know, it, I didn't expect it to be a four hub in a lot of legacy and modern decks, which is what you really need on a card, especially a, a recent rare to to pull a strong price tag. And without that standard play, it just it just can't quite get there. Um, if you did, and you did stumble upon one of the secret struggles of Magic Finance, which is finding the cards that you bought so many months ago. Uh, quietly has probably cost me a lot of money when I can't find the cards <laughs> that I know I purchased. I mean, the sad, but, part, right. the, the sad part of there is I have a pretty excellent catalog system, um, and I just don't know where these copies went, so I'm going to have to <laughs> dig deeper. All right, let's let's uh, let's head over to segment two. This is our cards to watch for the week. Uh, looks like you've got quite a lot to talk about, so I'm going to let you go ahead and start. Yeah, so one of the Planeswalkers that made top eight that didn't get a lot of camera time or discussion um, was Nahiri the Harbinger. Uh, Nahiri showed up in uh, a pretty interesting white-red Eldrazi deck uh, in the hands of the, uh, I believe, Argentinian player, if I'm not mistaken, Luis Salvato, um, in a red-white Eldrazi goggles deck. So he was only running one copy of Nahiri uh, uh, in the main and one in the sideboard, um, but he had three full copies of Chandra Flamecaller, um, two Eldrazi Displacer, two Goblin Dark Dwellers, two Matter Reshaper, four Thought Not Seer, uh, two Magmatic Insight, and four Tormenting Voice to get the whole free card draw thing off the goggles um, that we've seen in the, the blue-red versions and the green-red versions of that deck as well. Um, two Follow the Titans, Fiery Impulse, Fiery Temper, and Lightning Axe, so all of the, the red spells that work well with goggles. Um, you know, 
it was just a deck that was completely under the radar and it was very surprising when it made top eight because it hadn't you know been on camera uh or been discussed much by the coverage team and it just goes to show that camera time and discussion drive these spikes more than anything else i mean this is a deck that performed pretty well um and this is a planeswalker that again many people had assumed was unplayable but what's really got me excited isn't the two copies that showed up in the pro tour top eight um it's the copies that jeff hooglin was running in his kiki cord deck on stream last week um and and in very defensive of the card choice saying you know every time he was called on it in in stream um saying you guys have no idea what you're talking about i've been testing it all week um the card's amazing it does good work uh it's modern playable (laughs) you know i'm done talking about it the you know when you have somebody who's leading the seg tour um playing a deck that he's been playing you know for the better part of a year um, to great success, and he's identifying Nahiri as modern playable. That gets my interest. Um, if I see this this planeswalker fade back towards you know six or eight dollars, uh, I'm definitely going to be picking up some some insurance copies against the possibility that she does in fact show up in modern. Um, you know, I I haven't played enough Kiki Core to know why she's the right solution to slot in as like a two of. I think that's how many he was playing. Um, and the foils are already in the twenty five to thirty dollar range. Um, for, for no good reason, <laughs> as far as I can tell. <laughs> so they're, they're priced for success already, but the regular copies, you know, a, a modern playable mythic could, could, should hit $20 plus if it's, if it's the real deal. So it's at least a card to keep your eye on. Um, it could, the, re, the reason I like it and I'm, I'm calling it out is that it could make a move based on standard play during, before it rotates in a year and a half. Um, and even if it doesn't, maybe it's got a shot in modern. So the combination of the two has me interested. Well, I don't think there's possibly anything I could add to that. <laughs> All right, so tell me, uh, so so tell me about the chain veil then. Well, uh, yeah, I was all prepared to get on here and tell you guys that I thought the chain veil was a really good pickup uh, at its current price of a dollar fifty. But flipping through old show notes, apparently, I told you you should buy it at a dollar several weeks ago. So. <laughs> I'm going to, apparently, I I return to the same idea. Um, So I'm going to skip that for the time being. I still like it. Still a good long-term pick. And jump into the other thing I want to talk about this week, which is the uh, the gods from Theros Block. And that's that's Theros Born of the Gods and Journey into Nyx. Um, And in fact, the Theros Theros gods specifically might be a little late to the party on those. In fact, overall, uh, it looks like I'm coming to this probably about a month to two months later than I should be. I'm as I'm looking back at them, I'm seeing a lot of the prices start to move uh, sometime in between February and March um, on a lot of these guys uh, across the board. There aren't any ones specifically that I that I'm honing in on as really good pickups, but you'll notice that if you go back and you start looking at the price graphs for all of these various gods that they are beginning to trend up right at the end, and I don't think that any of them are anywhere near done moving yet. I expect these to behave similar to plane, similarly to Planeswalkers, where they just kind of tick upwards over time, uh, especially as they make very good commanders, which Planeswalkers don't. Um, so the gods and probably the foil gods even are all worth looking into, and at the very least are strong trade bait. So if you're out there with your binders, over the next few weeks and months, I would be uh, grabbing gods out of binders everywhere you can, especially because um, you may be able to get them on the cheap if people don't realize that they're they're really starting to pick up in the last month or two. Um, 
And, and I think it's an interesting cycle. I think that we will see the return of the gods eventually, but as for these ones specifically, we are quite a ways away. Um, the next time I would expect to see something like this might be like the Egyptian world block or maybe a Viking type of block, but God knows how many years it will be. God knows how many years it will be before we see that. So overall, I think as a, as a profile, these are guys I would definitely want to be looking for, uh, in trade binders and at good prices during sales. Yeah, it's worth noting that Perforos God of the Forge uh, shows up in Soul Sisters lists in modern. Um, Thassa God of the Sea as the cheapest, most powerful god that's already had a lot of top table exposure in standard uh, at three casting cost uh, for a 5-5 indestructible, you know, has potential uh, future synergies uh, alongside, at bare minimum, Nykthos trying to Nyx and um, Master of Waves, the other important blue mythic from Theros. Um, Heliod, God of the Sun, you know, lots of people have tried to make that work in a variety of different decks. It's never really come together, but, um, it, it's not impossible that it will, it will find a way. Nylea, God of the Hunt is a reasonably good commander card. Um, and, uh, I've seen it show up in some rogue kind of like tier three decks in, in modern, um, uh, alongside all, all sorts of weirdness. Basically, it's usually around big green, big dumb green red decks where they're trying to put some kind of, uh, combo in play to kill you in a single strike using Xenagos. Um, you know, the, the, the gods are all likely to trend up over time. They, they seem very reasonable as, uh, long-term specs to tuck away. They were even better at three or four dollars. They're okay around five or six. Um, and I would prioritize based on uh, level of play in casual EDH circles um, with, you know, potential appearances in modern as a backup plan. I agree. And I just want to point out real quick that Thassa in particular is probably a good one to keep an eye on. Um, again, because as you mentioned, Master of Waves is going to play with it. Um, a card whose competitive chops we're aware of. And also Thassa herself was very good in standard already with Master of Waves. And she's also seen one of the smallest increases in prices relative to some of the other gods. And she's a type of god that we could see show up in a casual, uh, or I'm sorry, a competitive format down the road uh, because she's costed, she's costed correctly for that. Uh, and was really one of the only gods to see heavy con competitive play. So um, small increase on Thassa so far relative to the others, and also probably the most competitively oriented card. So that's a good one, especially to keep your eye out for going forward. But I mean, that's a lot of talking about the gods. Oh, well, go ahead, go ahead. So interesting to me is that Athreos God of Passage has shown some decent growth on the back solely on, of casual demand. This is the black-white god um, that has some kind of combo potential uh, because it's only three casting costs for a 5-4 indestructible if you ever turn the devotion on. But the most interesting part is whenever another creature you own dies, return it to your hand unless target opponent pays three life. So, you know, th there's potential for this card in aristocrats type strategies uh, of which we have seen, you know, power and standard and modern repeatedly, no matter what kinds of cards they print to fuel those strategies, they always seem to do well. Um, and, you know, the fact that the, the card has managed to, to come up from, you know, five or six dollars up towards 10 or 12 already, um, without really having any play in modern, um, means that it could easily be a future 25 or 30 dollar card like Heronos has been at, at certain points, um, if it finds a home. So, you know, I've got some Korean and Russian sets of the gods tucked away, I believe, um, that were for personal play at, at bare minimum. 
Um, and I'm curious to see where these end up in two or three years when we circle back on them. Yep. I'm hoping that I get to be vindicated on this not too far in the future. We'll see. All right. So you go ahead. You've got a lot more to talk about this week. So my other pick this week uh, of note from uh, Standard is Sylvan Advocate. Um, this is a short to mid pick confidence level of six or seven. Um, it's from Oath of the Gatewatch, of course, uh, and it's already at $6, which is a perfectly reasonable price for a played rare and standard um, that is unlikely to make the jump to modern. Um, the thing is that it's not just a playable rare and standard. It is the most played card, um, at least at the Pro Tour, um, after... Uh, what was the land? It's the... So the thing is that Sylvan Advocate isn't just uh, a playable rare and standard. It was the second most played card at the Pro Tour after Evolving Wilds, with a total of 158 copies across 40 decks. Um, pretty much any deck that could play green was running this as the, the go-to two-slot. Um, the fact that it is always solid early and often amazing late um, as a threat that can also turn your, your creature lands into a threat um, has been, you know, very, very solid throughout uh, the time period that it's been available in Standard. It's likely to continue as such, and I, especially if you're going to GP Toronto this weekend, this is the kind of card I would want to have a whole bunch of in my backpack to be trading out in the $12 to $15 range uh, Saturday morning when people are running around desperately trying to fill out uh, copies for decks. I, uh, I don't want to dwell on this card because I told one of my friends that it was bad and wouldn't see play and I don't want him to realize that now we're talking about it as a spec pick. <laughs> but, but, but I mean, this a Sylvan Advocate feels very much a right place, right time. I wonder if this would be as successful were it not for the resurgence of humans, um, since it does so well in that matchup. Um, it's coming down really early, blocking that initial onslaught and then getting to finish, clean, close out late, later. So definitely a... Uh, benefiting from the metagame for sure um okay so i uh i'm gonna say this is i don't have another clear second pick for you guys this week and i just want to take two seconds to mention that because uh i don't want to feel like i have to give you guys cards that i am not personally confident in all the time. So I really like the gauze and I liked the chain veil before I realized I'd already talked about it, but not every week am I necessarily, or are we necessarily going to have lots of stuff that, that we feel like, uh, we need to recommend to you guys because then it just feels, um, forced. And I'm sure there's plenty of cards out there that if you ask me about them, I'd go, yeah, that's actually probably pretty good. So it's not that there isn't anything. It's just, there's nothing that comes to mind, but James has some other ones that I agree with this week. Um, so I think we should let him discuss those. Yeah, I mean, it's worth reiterating that it's not about having new... MTG Finance in general is not about having a new idea every week. It's also not a, a, about being in on every spike that takes place. It's really about minimizing the amount of time and energy and research you spend to maximize your profit. And as such, there are often opportunities that are far and away better than all of the other opportunities. And those are the ones you should be pursuing while completely ignoring all of the other stuff that's going on. So along those lines, let's talk about the card that has cost me the most money um, so far in 2016, and that would be um, the Expedition versions of Eye of Ugin, which I was picking up in the $220 to $250 US range um, on Puka Trade in late January, early February, um, when I quite early identified that uh, Eldrazi were going to be a ridiculously, uh, the Eldrazi deck was going to be a ridiculous juggernaut in modern 
um, and called that out in the digging for dollars um, segment that I placed on MTG price, um, only to find that I uh, held on to them too long, <laughs> uh, and the card has dropped down into the $60 range. Um, important to recognize, however, that if you manage to dodge the bullet earlier in the season, now is a time to start thinking about picking up this card. Not only is it a gorgeous piece of cardboard, um, but the Eldrazi deck is extremely real in Legacy, um, at least tier 1.5, uh, if not tier tier 1. And Ayavugan Expeditions are going to be, you know, in demand in that, you know, admittedly fading format, um, but certainly a format that can support uh, Expeditions over $100 down the road. So once the uh, bitterness of Eldrazi Winter wears off, I fully expect by this time next year that the Ayavugan Expeditions, of which there are only about 100 available online, um, will slowly inch their way back up into the $100 plus range um, and, you know, put a little bit of money in your pocket uh, along the way. Uh, okay. Still a fan of Eye of the Ugin. I like it. Uh, and it looks like you got one more that uh, that I agree with. I've actually been... I wasn't ready to call it as the pick of the week yet, but um, you're. we talked about it a little bit before the show, and I like your reasoning, so why don't you tell our listeners about it? Well, I mean, one of the arguments against Ayavugan, of course, is that it's now banned in modern. Um, and that the assumption when that took place was that Eldrazi was going to be knocked down to a tier three uh, deck at best. And that, you know, it would be mostly Eldrazi cards would mostly be, you know, for casual play or potentially legacy play in the deck I was just talking about. The, the reality, however, is that the players are finding a, a plethora of interesting ways to put the um, Eldrazi cards to use. I mean, looking through recent uh, winning deck lists in both standard, modern, and legacy, there are are over 10 deck types that are making use of various uh, mid-range Eldrazi cards, um, and not just, you know, one or two here and there. There's a combination of uh, almost 80 different decks that have won, uh, you know, dailies or uh, league tournaments on Magic Online recently, including green-red ramp strategies in standard, mono-red Eldrazi strategies in standard, white-black aggro in standard, um, green-red ramp. Um, in modern, we've seen deck lists that are being called Eldrazi and Taxes, which is basically like black-white Eldrazi using Thalia and other um, permission-based creatures. Uh, we're seeing blue-white Tron versions and red-green Tron versions that use the um, Tron lands to supplement Eldrazi ramp strategies. And we're even seeing green-red Eldrazi strategies that um, that use Talisman of Impulse instead of Eye of Ugin to achieve much the same game plan, you know, on a slightly slower, arguably fairer clock, but are still putting up results. And and what this all leads me to believe is that we have not seen the last of the Eldrazi. And specifically, my pick of the week out of all of the Eldrazi creatures to target, I think, is Thought Not Seer. The, you know, at four casting cost, um, with an excellent enters the battlefield trigger. Uh, this is a mid to long term pick. It's currently available in the $6 range. Keep in mind that it was out of a small set Oath of the Gatewatch, which many people have stopped buying early and dealers stopped cracking early because of the, you know, reversal of price t- trends around these cards as Eldrazi Winter wore down the, the good faith in modern, um, and made people feel like suckers for buying the set. Um, all of that, which leads me to believe that the, the supply on this card two or three years down the road is going to be low enough that we're going to see this rare backup over $10. 
Um, it's almost always a four when it's used. It's at least going to see play in casual circles and legacy. And it looks very likely to set up shop as at least a tier two deck uh, of multiple varieties in modern. Um, and therefore, I like it as an easy double up in the next, say, two years. Yeah, Thought Not Seer is so good, so good. And I, I remember when it was spoiled, I was really hoping the price would not be out of control because I wanted to buy lots of them. And, uh, you know, like I said, I've been holding off on this a little bit. I'm hoping that it can dip a little bit more over the summer, and it may or may not, but that doesn't mean that six is still a bad point to get in at. And, uh, you know, with Temple or uh, with, yeah, I'll draw the Temple still legal and modern, and this card being very good at just a straight four mana, you know, even if you don't have Temple, um, it, it's, it's, it's so powerful and modern, breaks the color pie, it feels like all over the place, fits in any of these decks. Uh, it's seen all that play in uh, Legacy as well, and uh, it's just there, there's a lot of demand for this card. So I don't think that looking for a double up on this is out of the realm of possibility, especially because Oath of the Gatewatch is the set that I would be looking for most of my standard specs to come out of right now. It's the second set in the rotation. Um, and as we head into Eldritch Moon and start to turn the corner this fall, it's going to be the set, I think, best position to start picking up value. Uh, cause, you know, you know, you want to stay away from dragons and origins right now. Um, and shadows over in strides too early. And Oath of the Gatewatch comes in as the second set. So it's right in the sweet spot of sets to be buying into as well. So, um, I, I, I'm wholeheartedly agree with Thought Not Seer at this point. Uh, okay, I mean, but I let's. So, oh, so, uh, so as I said, it's it's already seeing play in numerous standard decks, including um, Luis Salvado's top eight Pro Tour deck. The red-white Eldrazi Goggles is called Eldrazi Goggles because it was running two copies of Eldrazi Displacer and four copies of Thought Not Seer. Um, so, I mean, so many different shells running it. In the Eldrazi and Taxes deck, it's worth noting, the other Eldrazi involved are, again, Eldrazi Displacer, which I think has is going to end up on our list soon because... This is a card that has tremendous long-term casual chops. The ability to flicker a creature in and out is, again, open-ended synergy. And uh, is, you know, as a 3-3 three, three, um, for 3, is a solid beater in and of itself. It's going to be kitchen table magic. It's going to be EDH. It's going to be modern. Um, and it has potential. It's, you know, it's running in, being run in the band company decks. It's being run in all sorts of uh, shells and standard and the other card that showed up in the black white Eldrazi decks that were kind of the, the forerunners of Eldrazi in modern, um, you know, in the hands of uh, uh, people like Frank, um, is Wasteland Strangler. I mean, the, the ability to uh, path to exile a creature and then Wasteland Strangler another creature, um, removing that creature from exile, uh, is, is still a powerful two-for-one uh, play to be making in modern. Um, these decks are typically running uh, El- Ethervile um, alongside Leonin Arbiter, Thalia, as I said before, Tide Hollow Sculler, and Flicker Wisp. And, you know, the ability to Flicker Wisp in and out things like Wasteland Strangler and Thought Not Seer uh, is pretty sexy tech. Yeah, God, Displacer. I like Displacer so much. I just, I, I keep wondering if there's a Displacer Training Grounds deck in Modern because... You know, training grounds kind of sucks, but how much value do you really need to get out of Displacer one mana activation before it's worth having to run that terrible enchantment? Displacer is a real card, and I think it and Thought Not Seer we are only just beginning to understand the implications of. Yep, agreed. Okay, so we have been going on for quite a while, so let's uh, start jumping through segment three and segment four here pretty quickly. Oh, 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 uh, oh we have one thing, though. This week we have a Cell Watch oh. card. 
Um, yeah, I'm so, sorry. So, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, and this one's an important one because <laughs> the timing could not be better. Um, Jay's friend's prodigy, and I'm talking about non-foils here um, because I think the foils, you know, may see a dip as well, but are likely to rebound relatively quickly. Um, since in the older formats like modern and legacy and vintage, um, where this card is going to be played forever, um, you know, the foils are are going to dry up faster um, and be in higher demand. But Jay's friend's prodigy has been dominant. Um, since a month after he was released, nobody thought this card was going to go anywhere. They thought it was a terrible Jace, possibly the second worst Jace of all time. And instead, it's easily the second ba- best Jace of all time after Jace the Mind Sculptor. Um, and it's currently sitting at about $65. Um, you know, without Delve uh, and Fetch Lands in the format anymore, Jace isn't quite as exciting. Um, but he's still showing up in lists, although he, he still made top eight at the Pro Tour. Um, and that being the case, you, you may still be able to trade him out to people that, you know, are heading into GPs in the next month or so, um, and get your value. My target for the card before he rotates or, you know, the month leading up to rotation this fall is about $40. I think that he can get down to that. And since he's currently worth over 60, um, you know, now is the time to get out of copies that you're not using. Yeah, yeah, that that's a good point. That's a good point about Jason and getting rid of it. And uh, I agree there as well. And I think that we will probably be talking about looking at this as a pickup um, somewhere later this year. But for the time being, uh, it might be dangerous to be holding on to these, especially if you have spares uh, for the non-foils. It's, it's important for people to remember that in the in December of 2014 and January of 2015, I picked up 10 or 12 copies of Liliana of the veil at around 50 to 55 dollars us which i later traded out on puka trade for almost 120 dollars us worth of points um and the you know even the best of the best of the planeswalkers and i think liliana has to be the second best planeswalker of all time by any reasonable standard after jace the mind sculptor um you know constant play and legacy and modern um she was only fading in early 2015 because uh jund wasn't doing that well um and and junk was basically non-existent so the you know if she can get that low um and this was post everybody already knowing that she was full-on modern playable as a four of then at rotation jace should get down to that you know 35 or 40 dollar range and give everybody an opportunity to get back in at a cheaper price i also agree we are <laughs> we're gonna have to change the name of this podcast james because <laughs> we are we are like uh, f- almost 15 minutes in and we've done the first two segments <laughs> uh, all right segment three metagame we can review uh this is the uh, pro tour shadows over innistrad <clears throat> uh eight different decks i mean we've covered several of these in our discussion so far uh we talked about seasons control with the dark petition and seasons pass we looked at uh, you spoke about the boros goggles deck at length when talking about nahiri um and we talked about Sylvan Advocate showing up all over the place. So there's there's a lot going on here. Uh, I think, let's see, what is the most interesting thing here to me? I, we, you, why don't you start while I look at this list a little bit? Well, I mean, let's talk about the deck that won the tournament. Um, that all of the pros who made top eight um, expressed respect for. Um, and LSV called on his stream last night, uh, if not the best deck in standard, then the one that is the furthest ahead in the running. Um, and this would be Steve Rubin's Green-White Tokens deck, um, notable because it's running four copies of Gideon, Ally of Zendikar, and four copies of Nisa, Voice of Zendikar, alongside four Archangel Avacyn, four Hangerback Walker, four Sylvan Advocate, the aforementioned dominant rare, 
Um, and for Thraben Inspector, the <laughs> the little one-two that could that that we don't seem to be able to escape in any deck in standard right now. Thraben Inspector is the new judge's familiar. Yeah, exactly. So four copies of Dromoka's Command and two Secure the Waste. And uh, alongside a, a copy of Evolutionary Leap, three Oath of Nisa, and a Stasis Snare. So what we have here is a collection of um, the best token-producing uh, Planeswalkers in the format being defended by some of the best defensive early drops in Inspector, Sylvan Advocate, and Hangerback Walker. Some cute tricks you can do with Archangel Avacyn, like flipping her to kill Bant Company's board by playing a Hangerback Walker for zero. Um, and the ability to leverage Dromoka's command on your relatively high toughness uh, defenders to um, get rid of whatever problematic card happens to be on the other side of the board. Um, there was also some pretty powerful turns where, you know, Nisa ticked up, made a plant token, Gideon uh, made a 2-2, two -two, uh, left the mana wide open, cast Secure the Waste for 5 on the end of their turn, then sack Gideon, uh, pop uh, Nisa, and swing in for like 20 or 30 damage. Um, you know, a fairly uh, straightforward, grindy, mid-range, defensive-oriented mid-range deck that can go explosive in the course of a single turn. Um, that did very impressive work on camera all weekend, occasionally made excellent use of Westvale Abbey, you know, dropping uh, the profane prince into play and swinging for 9-7 haste indestructible lifelink in the air. Um, just a great deck overall, and uh, worth pointing out because Nisa has seen some traction this week moving from about $10 to 14 but could easily push up over 20 if the deck continues to do well. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm going to go the other way. I want to look at the Seasons Control deck that Finkel played. Uh, you know, I want to highlight this because I think that this is a uh, what they call a Pro Tour deck. And uh, Finkel actually kind of, I think he has a history of doing this. I specifically remember his um, Pro Tour, God, I don't remember what Pro Tour deck it was, but he played Spirits and it behaved similarly and it was really good in that event and he top aided with it. And then you never really saw it in Standard again. Uh, with this deck specifically, the Seasons Control deck, this is, uh, you know, John Finkel is a fantastic player. I'm not sure a lot of players are going to be able to replicate this success at the local level. It's not only is it a very slow deck to play, which means you're going to have to figure out your lines very quickly. Um, it's going, it involves, a, it's an attrition deck. It grinds people out and it, you have to know how to earn those incremental advantages at, on every decision juncture, which uh, weaker players are going to have difficulty doing. So I don't expect this deck to become a major part of the metagame in the near future, uh, which really undermines the stability of both Dark Petition and Seasons Pass. So while we saw it here and it was responsible for the two biggest spikes of the week, I don't think that this is something that uh, the finance, financial community or the competitive community can rely on seeing week in and week out on the Star City circuit. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things here is that the because the deck ha has um, relatively uh, weak early turns and can be overrun in, uh, in, against aggro decks, a large part of its viability depends on how aggro versus mid-range the format is expected to be. The Pantheon clearly made a decision here that they expected to see more Bant Company than they did mono-white humans. Um, I think probably because they, they were thinking a step ahead uh, and assuming that everybody was going to respond with the full four copies of Languish um, to to put the white decks on the back foot. Since Languish also hits Avacyn, um, you know, there, there was some upside there. Uh, so 
Seasons Control should probably be in people's back pocket for local metagames where they expect to see a lot of grindy mid-range action. Um, once you survive, you know, the first four or five turns of the game and you set up shop and control and you start to get, start recursing Dark Petition and, and Seasons Past, you are very much in the driver's seat. Um, but it's worth pointing out again that, you know, despite having Finkel, Huey, Reed, and Owen on the deck, um, you know, only Finkel really made a deep run, which is actually a pretty good percentage out of, you know, given how few players were running it. But given that the other, you know, the other three players were the Peach Garden Oath, um, you know, maybe they could have gone gone deeper if the deck was better suited to the, the way the metagame played out. Um, even so, I would add it to your gauntlet um, locally. Uh, and and if you've got extra copies of Seasons Pass that you don't mind hanging on to, um, it's certainly a fun deck to play. Uh, yeah, I have no doubt that it's fun. That's uh, <laughs> that that does look pretty amusing. Those turns were were cool to watch. People were having a lot of fun with that. Um, okay, is there anything else you want to talk about in uh, from the Pro Tour that we haven't discussed yet? Well, it's also it's good to note that Avison, though not as dominant as she was expected to be, was still pretty much everywhere. I mean, she was a very heavily played card. She showed up in multiple different deck types, even in the top eight. Um, and you know, I think she's at peak pricing for the time being. Um, Trading her out now is a solid, solid idea. If you were lucky enough to get in, you know, at the twenty or twenty-five dollar range, or if you popped a couple copies in a box and you're not, you're not planning on using them, you can basically reinvest in a whole another box if you if you trade her out, um, which has to be good. Also interesting to note that you should never count out a Jace. Jace Unraveler of Secrets made the top eight of a Pro Tour. Um, two copies in the Esper Planeswalker deck that Seth Manfield, current world champion, was running. Um, so there's a you know potential for the control decks to latch onto that card and make better use of him, uh, in which case he he could see some growth over time. Um, although I expect him to be more likely to stay in the kind of the zone of Obnixilis, whereas a occasional one or two of in a relatively low percentage of the metagame, uh, his price will be just stable. Right, and and I you remind me of two things is uh, one it's at this point in time, standard is pretty inflated price-wise. The Pro Tour always drives numbers crazy. Um, so I think in general, I am kind of staying away from standard until it, it quiets down a little bit and these prices come back uh, a little closer to Earth. Um, but again, that happens with most Pro Tours, so no surprise there. And, and also uh, a, a notable absence was Arlen Cord, who did not show up, I don't think, pretty much anywhere. Um, aside from maybe a, a rare copy here or there, uh, which is interesting because she looked like the best planeswalker, um, coming into the pro tour, at least coming out of spoiler season for Shadows over Innistrad. So I'm keeping a close eye on her price tag because the power level is so high. And, uh, you know, if we see her get down into the six to eight dollar range between now and an Eldritch Moon and then suddenly a new red green legendary werewolf comes out that's on par with, uh, Hot Master of the Fells power level, Arlen Cord could explode pretty heavily. So, uh, you know, in events like this, it's always worth watching the cards that didn't show up almost as much as the cards that did. Yeah, Ar- Arlen is, uh, should, should have made our sell watch list, um, because she's still too high for the level of play. Um, she is going to get down to, you know, somewhere in the probably six to ten dollar range before she has a chance to pop back up. You're absolutely right to say that Eldritch Moon will be that opportunity. Um, and you're probably looking to to pick up copies on the cheap and then sell into spoiler hype um, and not wait to see if the deck develops, um, as that has proven to be a reasonable strategy in the past. Yep. All right. So let's hop over to segment four, our topic of the week. Uh, this week, we're looking at the other news to come out of the Pro Tour. 
that was the announcement to the the organized play changes in terms of payouts as well as the loss of the modern Pro Tour. Uh, on the organized play changes, what we saw was a loss in uh, payouts to both Hall of Fame members and Platinum players. Hall of Famers now only get their $1,500 appearance fee for showing up at the Pro Tour with the Hall of Fame induction ceremony, but no other events. So they went from a maximum of about $7,500 a year to $1,500. Um, I haven't heard too many people angry about this for the most most part Hall of Fame players um, are kind of doing their own thing. They don't really scrape for the cash. But the Platinum players, that was a pretty big change. Uh, what happened was all of the players who played from last June, so June of 2015 through June of this year when Eldritch Moon releases, who had earned Platinum would be eligible for the Platinum benefits uh, in the year following. So from June of this year through June of next year, 2017, which uh, if you did attended all of the Pro Tours worked out to something like just under $12,000. Well, Wizards at the Pro Tour just now, Shadows of Innerstrad, said, hey, guess what? It's not going to be $12,000 anymore. It's going to be like 2000 So they cut a huge chunk of money out from underneath all of these players that have spent the last nine months working towards those. Um, there was a tremendous community outcry on Twitter uh, I mean, even in like the 48 hours after most Wizards employees were still just trying to get back from Spain uh, to their offices, uh, social media was all over this. Uh, as of, I think, yesterday, so Tuesday, Monday or Tuesday, Wizards announced that they were walking back the Platinum uh, reduction in benefits. So for the coming year, the Platinum players will still get those benefits, um, but really... Uh, beyond that change, what I think the interesting story here is uh, what this means for the organized play as a whole. Uh, what is Wizards trying to do with this? Because while this may have salvaged uh, those players' appearance fees for the coming season, uh, Wizards is definitely thinking on, thinking on a longer time frame. So James, I'm curious, what do you think Wizards is angling for with these changes? I think we have to go right to the top and understand the 10,000 foot view. Um, and keep in mind that all of this is, um, at least partially supposition, but, you know, from all the facts that I've taken in, in over the last few years, talking to dealers, talking to vendors, talking to Wizards employees and people close to the situation, um, here's my understanding of where we're at with Magic. Um, the tremendous growth that we saw coming out of the last recession, so from, say, 2010 through to 2013, 2009 to 2013 is probably more accurate. Um, where we achieved this, you know, potential 15 million to 20 million players worldwide, um, essentially doubling the player base, um, has gone the way of the dinosaur. And as the, you know, global economy has kind of been in a in a in a uh, kind of uh, quasi stagnation period, where you know there's been growth but not tremendous growth, and everything has been kind of middling in in its success. Uh, Hasbro, as an international operator on the, the games and toys scene, um, has also been, you know, struggling uh, with revenues and profits. Um, Wizards is owned by Hasbro, and I'm sure that Hasbro is handing down um, directives that say you got to tighten your belt, and we want to see increases in revenue. Um, if you look at all of the decisions that have been made in the last couple of years, it all adds up. Um, you know, taking standard from a two year cycle to a year and a half cycle is about getting the existing player base to spend more money um, because 
they've come to the conclusion that growing the game is not easy or possible or cost effective. And so trying to get all of us to spend more on the game is going to be easier for them. Canceling the modern pro tour plays into that as well, because refocusing the most visible um, promotional efforts for the game on the most recent sets um, makes sure that we're all buying those sets and not worrying about buying cards in the secondary market for our modern and legacy decks. Um, and this is a continuation of the lack of support that Wizards has shown for Legacy. Um, the word on the street last year was that in exchange for Pro Tour invites uh, at the Star City Games circuit, um, Wizards had negotiated for them to de-emphasize Legacy. Now we're seeing the the, the uh, elimination of the modern Pro Tour. The pros, it's worth noting, are all for that because they just don't think modern is a great format um, uh, for them. Uh and, you know, so from that perspective, I don't think we have much to worry about. What we should be thinking about, though, as players is what it means in terms of um, where where Magic is likely headed. If Magic is going to be re- relatively stagnant in player growth, then expect Wizards to not have your best interests at heart and to continuously look to pump more money out of you as an existing player. Um, and y- your best response to that is to vote with your wallet. Figure out what parts of the game are worth the most to you that carry excellent uh, value for you and go ahead and put your money in there and send the right signal to the company. Um, But don't get sucked in to buying every product they put out or um, trying to keep up with every format at once to the degree that it it signals success um, to them in attempting to get you to do that. If you if you do so, you will end up right where they want you to be, which is, you know, taking your annual budget from, say, a thousand dollars a year on magic to 15 or 1600. It's interesting to me that you go with this direction and not because I think you're wrong, but because I think it is different than what I've been hearing. Aside from the general gnashing of teeth about how awful this is for magic in general, the viewpoint that I have seen show up several times is that this is about trying to keep up with esports and the general esports model. We've seen an explosion in that scene in the last handful of years. You've seen Hearthstone uh, running their their tournaments and their their uh, yearly tournament, annual tournament, with, I think, like, multi-million dollar payout. Um, you can look at League of Legends and Dota and CSGO as three of the biggest esports models where players are regularly getting handed checks worth hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. And the uh, payout structure in those fields is very different, aside from, a, uh, as I understand it, a small selection of players who receive some sort of stipend from Riot Games directly, uh, league players. Most players in these uh, competitive esports arenas don't get paid by the company who makes the game. Valve is not giving money to competitive Counter-Strike players for showing up at events. They make all of their money from sponsorships. Um, sponsorships is something that we don't really see a lot of in Magic, or at least we see a very surface-level use of it. Um, you know, you write articles for a website, they ask you to wear a t-shirt on stream when you show up at the Pro Tour, whatever, uh, but there's not a real a real sponsorship presence as you see in things like Counter-Strike and League of Legends. So, 
uh, the, the thinking perhaps is that Wizards is trying to pull back from supporting the players directly and instead put their money towards these really big headline tournaments uh, where they like worlds where they try to compete with the prize purses available from games like league and counter-strike but you know they're not even close but whatever they're trying to just be on the same ballpark as that and then let other sponsors pick up the slack and covering the living expenses for these players um what do you think about that what do you think about that yeah, so I think I don't think that's wrong. I just think that the logic chain, you know, what I was referring to is why is there mo- no modern pro tour? Um, mm-hmm. I didn't get around to explaining why it ended up being that the pros got screwed. Um, the 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 pro tour is about the, the pro tour being standard is about modern not being a good way to sell new cards. It's it's that simple. Um, the uh, analogies to the esports world and the kind of wannabe status of wizards to join that the pressure that they're probably getting from hasbro i think is all probably accurate i think there probably was a meeting at some point where some executive said um you know if we want to if we want to you know be a force on twitch um where a lot of our content is delivered these days and we want to do that alongside all of the video game companies then we're going to have to put uh, up more money um the flip side of that is that I think the second half of that conversation went something like, well, you know, I'm not doing that from my budget. And and they said, well, that's going to have to come out of organized play's budget. And I think that, you know, Helen's budget at organized play is relatively limited um, in the sense that it doesn't have a lot of uh, wiggle room um, because as a promotional part of their marketing mix, uh, it's very difficult for them to, uh, in a concrete way, uh, establish the benefit that they get in uh, brand goodwill and actual revenues. And anytime you have a situation where a company like Hasbro can't draw a direct line between the um, event that they're putting on and the revenues that were generated um, in the way that they could if, say, we were all paying to attend those events um, or sponsors were paying to sponsor them, um, because you're right to point out that there's very little in the way of lifestyle uh, spo- brand sponsorship uh, of Magic. Um, you know, in those scenarios where they can't draw that line effectively, that's where somebody's going to say, well, we're not going to increase this budget to compete with the video game uh, companies and, and their respective events. Instead, we're just going to reallocate. And where can we reallocate from? And somebody came up with the idea that, well, you know, the pros are important, but maybe they can get by just on the the potential uh, winnings maybe they don't need to have appearance fees and i think that's the problem there was twofold one uh, as a short-term thing to say you know three quarters of the way through the season we're going to change the payouts is just brutal planning brutal execution terrible marketing terrible pr it's the antithesis of everything you want your relationship with the pro community and the players that that aspire to become part of that to be thinking about you and your company because it represents a lack of good faith. It represents a lack of care for, you know, the, the sacrifices that these people make to be on the Pro Tour. I mean, Pro Tour Magic players in general are extremely smart and competent people. A lot of them could be doing, you know, uh, could be making a lot more money if they would leave Magic behind and go enter into a more uh, traditional career path. And so when they um, function as both ambassadors of the game as well as high-performing, consistent players in a a very uh, uh, high-variance sport, 
uh, I think it's important that you support those people in the way that you promised. Now, in the short term, it's excellent that they reversed uh, their decision based on the pressure they got on social media from the community. And not only are the pro the pros getting back their appearance fees for this season, but uh, the prize pool for Worlds is still going up. So they've, they've not only reversed, they've actually gone a little bit beyond that. But the thing that everybody's pointing out in their articles over the last 48 hours is that, um, you know, we're still probably facing a downtrend in support for pros uh, in organized play, you know, the year after or the year after that. Um, if, if they will not increase the budget for organized play, then the money has to come from somewhere and it's going to come from the pros uh, and the appearance fees are likely going to, you know, largely disappear at the platinum level. And though some people said that that only, you know, applies to, you know, 40 or 50 people or so, um, I beg to differ. I, I think that, a big part of what makes the Pro Tour valuable to Magic as a brand is the aspirational quality. You have tens of thousands of grinders all over North America and in Europe and in Asia, some coming out of South America even, that that play Magic at a competitive level on the hopes that one day down the road, if they try hard enough, they will make the Pro Tour. And a big part of that is seeing the same faces on screen at the Platinum level year after year. Um, with, of course, some you know, variety and rotation and people ebbing and flowing in and out of the game. But without that consistency and without the belief um, that you could you know, make a, a living off Magic one day, I think a lot, a lot of people's interest in the competitive portion of the game would wane. And so it doesn't just affect 40 people. It potentially uh, damages the brand um, in some kind of you know, um, difficult-to-ascertain um, value set uh, that is deeper in the goodwill portion of their balance sheet. Um, and, and that's what makes it dangerous is because they can't, they can't figure out the exact number um, that they should associate with that. I, I have trouble accepting that this is a scenario uh, where players are aspiring to live the life of a professional magic player um, as that lifestyle being somehow sustainable, because even with the platinum fees in place, someone like, I mean, let's say, take Owen Turtenwald, who is close to the best player in the world right now, extremely successful, extremely high win rate at competitive REL events. I mean, what is he making per year? What is his take home? Is it even 50 or 60 grand? You know, for some of our listeners who are we're living on minimum wage, that sounds like a dream. But I mean, 50 or 60 grand is is not a lot of money, especially if you are in a metropolitan area. So uh, I, I guess I don't want I don't want you're, you're not incorrect. That I, I think a lot of people aspire to like getting to live the life of a professional magic player no, no, no. and they don't care if it's not a lot of money. Yeah, but let me make clear. What? It, I, I don't actually think that people sit around planning out the budget of how much money they're going to make as a pro tour player. I, I think it's more like you are you want to go play in a competitive tournament on the weekend and your friend or your girlfriend or your parent says, oh, why are you bothering with that? And you go, oh, they have a pro tour and you can make X amount of money. The pro tour pays out 40000 for first or the world championships now pays out 100000 for first. And people go, oh, really? It it, it it lends that whole chain of the what is really semi-pro, but they've been calling pro forever. Um, yeah. But choosing to use the word pro when, in fact, it's definitely semi-pro, and it's really only semi-pro for platinum and above, um, it 
is you is selected for a reason because from the very beginning in the mid 90s when they had the first pro tour they realized that by saying professional it lended a whole nother dimension to the game that reinforced and buttressed the aspirational elements of the game and encouraged people to pursue it in in a way that they would not have done if those tours have not existed if i i firmly believe that magic would have been a may may well not exist today if it weren't for the pro tour because i think that having the penultimate version of the competition on a global stage with big big checks attached to it has has added to the goodwill of the brand in a way that is very difficult to express you're completely correct, and I agree that Magic basically wouldn't be here were it not for the Pro Tour. Um, however, I will specify that the, oh, well, you get to what, you know, first place at Pro Tour pays 50 grand. First place at the World Championships pays a quarter of a million dollars now. Those are the headlines that people latch onto, not the platinum players make $3,000 four times a year. That, what I'm saying is, and, and maybe, maybe we're just kind of on the same point, but don't realize it, but it's losing the platinum player Players who are aspiring to the pro tour today and who want to become, who want to grind and become professional magic players don't do it because of the $3,000 platinum players get. They do it because they get to point to the 40, the giant checks that are being handed out at these major events. So when they pull the platinum player benefits, but increase the payouts for these few events, it only reinforces that headline well quietly or not so quietly in this case actually removing the ability for people to uh easier stay on the circuit so i guess i just think about in like players if players were really thinking about the money and really thinking about how easy it would or would not be to stay on the pro tour dream and actually live that lifestyle they would already not be chasing it so like pulling the platinum player benefits isn't going to change that in fact i mean it almost feels like in the long run this could get more people onto the train because there's bigger checks to point at even though the lifestyle is less sustainable. Uh, I think that the bigger checks are certainly targeted at getting more attention from people who aren't really going to do the math, but it is going to hollow out the um, the consistency of faces at the top of the pyramid because once they get to that level, it becomes a very real thing, not an imaginary thing. And when, once it's a real thing, guys like Owen and Reed um and and you know their peers have to do the hard math in terms of what it requires for them to get by and the problem with making the payouts top heavy and results oriented um you know top eight plus and burying a lot of the money in the world championships is that they can't do any like month-to-month planning you 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 can't manage your budget when you don't even know if you're going to make world championships until towards the end of the year and even if you make it there, it's so top-heavy once you get there that you don't know um, how much of that money you're going to have available to you in the next year. At, whereas the, the benefit of the, the platinum and gold benefits is that you're getting pieces of, of your, your expected value from your commitment to the tour along the way. And so you, know, you, you show up as a platinum player at your third pro tour of the year, you get a few thousand dollars, um, and, and you you play well and you get some more money, you know, you're getting the cash infusion you need to make it to the next pro tour and to commit to going to rent a house with some guys for two weeks in, in Madrid. I mean, the amount of, the amount of, uh, e, uh, amount of money you have to pay to get into position to win some more money in magic is higher than in almost any other sport. 
you know, there's there's plenty of other opportunities to just go show up somewhere with your, you know, five hundred dollars or a thousand dollars in gear and make a stab at, at at a cash prize. But in Magic, you have to be willing to, you know, travel and see the world, as they say. But most of that is coming out of your pocket. Now, if you do well, you should be able. It's my belief that you should be able to get into position where Wizards is making sure that you're taken care of, so that they have uh, a set of ambassadors that is consistent that people will latch onto. You know, like when people were cheering for, you know, the various people that made the, the top eight at the Pro Tour this weekend. Um, it's not because they were nobodies. It was be it was an exciting Pro Tour because we recognize these people because those of us that have been around for twenty years are attached emotionally to people to figures like John Finkel are you know excited to see LSV you know poss- probably the the most important personality in the game um you know make another top 8 and if the if the people that are in the top 8 are just you know kind of some random dudes that you wouldn't know unless you were part of their local meta game um and it's different people all the time because nobody can afford to stick with it for very for very long um i think the game will suffer and i think it's short sighted on on behalf of hasbro and expresses yet again um what is has been um demonstrated uh, many times uh when talking to people that have worked at wizards of the coast which is that their hr policies in general are poor um and when you're looking at hasbro as a corporation um their digital strategy is atrocious i mean they've made such a mess of magic uh, online over the years um and if we're talking about them really coming shoulder to shoulder with esports it's not about the paycheck it's about generating a version of a digital version of the game that can be played as an esport. I mean, <laughs> you you have to assume that that's the first step in the right direction, right? It, yes, yeah, I do think that uh, turning Magic into a viable digital platform would be a major step towards actually being able to put together a pro circuit that rivals that of Hearthstone. And I've been saying for a few years now that I think they need to stop trying to make Magic online and make make a different variant of Magic be their their web platform but uh, and and I agree with a lot of what you said about about the the conditions of what makes a pro's life sustainable um my th- my thought I'm going to try and say this succinctly was whether or not they give out those pro those platinum payments or not either way it is not sustainable and it's not enough money to live on so well, well yes, exa- exa- exactly. And and that was the point that was the point that multiple pros made after they reversed the decision and gave them the money back was okay, yeah. now let's have the real conversation is which is if you really want to be uh on par with the esports, why don't you just dump more money into competitive play? Right. I mean, if we've really got 15 or 20 million players and let's say that growth is stalled, but revenues are still as high as they've ever been, then why is it that for instance, uh prize pools on the pro tour haven't really grown in the last 10 years overall? And that GP payouts don't don't represent even a, a reasonable fraction of what they should if you compare them to, say, poker tournaments. Um, the amount of money that goes into a pro tour, you have 3,000 people putting in, you know, $60 minimum on the weekend and probably more through side events and so forth. And yet the payout is is, you know, a single digit percentage or, you know, sometimes, you know, somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the total amount taken in. And yes, those tournaments have massive overhead. But it still doesn't add up. The numbers don't add up. Too much of the profit is being swallowed by people that are are, are not competing um, and funding those tournaments. And All so right. competitive play in the you know opinion of most of the people that are in the know 
seems to the, the consensus seems to be competitive play just needs more money. Yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. I mean, if you're going to get the game someplace meaningful, you do need a lot more money in competitive play. But the problem is your player base is very different than that of League. And the question is, is the money worth it for Wizards? Um, but, I mean, we could talk about this for another three hours, and I'm starving. So I am going to call it. <laughs> uh, so, James, where can our loyal listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Awesome. And again, my name's Travis. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I write every Wednesday for MTG Price. Uh, James, I thought this week was some of our best content yet, and I'm glad we got a chance to discuss everything. Thank you very much, Travis. And let me remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, which is two months free, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Okay, great. Have a nice night, James. Take care. We'll see you next week, Travis. Mm-hmm.